Well, it's been a wonderful time of worship, hasn't it, this morning? Amen. Love that song. Um, may, you, may our praise always be, may God's praise always be on our lips. Amen to God. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, and this is a pertinent passage regarding Christ's own eventual crucifixion and how the disciples will respond. Will they respond in faithfulness, or will Christ be the one who is faithful? Obviously, we know the answer to that already. Jesus is the one who is faithful. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 to 35. Let's read this together, and we'll dive right in to understand more of what God has to say to us. Verse 30. When they son of him, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. It's about in the word of prayer. Our Father, we are coming to this passage and really a, a, a serious passage, a solemn passage about your faithfulness and really our inability to, to be faithful at all times. Lord, we are weak and we don't always um, do what your will tells us to do, but it's your faithfulness that carries us through. And we pray that we will be encouraged by this passage knowing that there are disciples of Jesus who, who also failed and yet they're carried on by your grace. Help us, Lord, to see this passage clearly now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Human relationships are fickle, and certainly we all find times we felt betrayed by others. You know, I had this experience in my life once. It happened when I was very, very young. I still experience, I feel it in my heart because emotionally I was sort of scarred by it. I was uh, in seventh grade. And while I was in seventh grade, I uh, had this good friend of mine, this particular good friend. Uh, we hang out together quite a bit. I went to his house and slept over his house. He came over to my house, and uh, we were just good friends, and we played video games together. We had a lot of things we had in common. I thought that, you know, we we're close. And summer came, and school was out, and we didn't see each other for the whole summer. And when school started back up again, I... I was excited to see him when I saw him all the way across the playground, and he was walking with his two other friends who I didn't know who they are. Went up behind him because I want to surprise him. I want to show that I still know him, and we're still good friends. So I went behind him. He was wearing his backpack, so I, I need his backup, backpack up a little bit. It's just kind of like a middle school thing. You pop his backup, backpack up, and it falls down. It didn't hurt nothing. He was just kind of a little surprised and surprised him. And I was smiling. I was happy to see him. He turned around and uh, he pushed me to the ground. And I didn't know what happened. He cursed at me. He's like, what you know, are you doing? I remember that. And he walked away. Now, I remember this because I ended up walking home crying that day. You know, I was a sad little kid. And you might look at that. You might think, well, this is something that happens in middle school. It's very common for kids Emotion to get hurt, and it is true. However, this kind of emotion, which I experienced while I was in seventh grade, is something probably you also experienced, not in the playgrounds of the school, but in the playgrounds of 
life. You know, we all experience this. We all have been hurt by other people who we thought were loyal to us. We thought that were our best friends. You know, it could be issues regarding your finances. It could be issues regarding your work, your coworkers. It could be issues among family members. We all have felt betrayed by the one that which we thought we could count on. And this kind of feeling kind of puts us in a place of uncertainty. You know, we don't want to trust anyone anymore. We don't want to trust any person because we felt like perhaps we'll go through the same emotion again with this other individual. So we kind of hold back and we don't want to step forward in making any more relationships. And so many of us, we function that way. Today, our encouragement is this. Even though we don't often and can't often trust in human relationships, there's one person we can trust at all times. And that person is who? Is God. Amen. God is the one we can trust all times. He promises us in Scripture that we can trust Him. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 says this, and this is God's word to the people of Israel. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I will never, ever leave you. I will always be by your side. That's God's promise to God's people. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 10 says also the same thing. It says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. That's God's promise. God loves us. He will never leave us. His peace will forever be with us. This is a curious promise of God because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. In fact, the more we read Scripture, the more we wonder how this love actually came about. The reason why you must ask the question is because we're sinners before God. Each one of us sinned before God. Each one of us are an abhorrence before God because our God is a holy God. Our God is a just God. Our God is a righteous God. And according to God's righteousness and God's holiness, all sinners must Endure God's perfect judgment. And that perfect judgment is the judgment of forever separation from God. It's a place called hell that we must all go to. All sinners would have to be separated from God because we cannot be in his presence, the presence of the holy and the righteous God. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says this concerning God, you who are pure eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. So God must judge sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 tells us what that judgment is like. For all sinners who refuse to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's what hell is. Away from the presence of God in forever, forever being punished under the wrath of God. So if God is the one who judges sin, God is the one who will punish sin, then how can he also be the one who will never leave us and forsake us? Those are two different ideas, two different approaches of God to a people of God or to, a, to humanity rather. The reason why God can love us and never forsake us is because there's one person who took the punishment from us, and that is Jesus. See, Jesus, he came to earth. He is the perfect God. He forever lives as a perfect God, but he came to earth and lived as a man. 
And when he was a man, he gave his life for us. His life was perfect. He never sinned his life. He never committed any wrongdoing. And yet he died on the cross. And we died on the cross. He gave his perfect righteousness to you. We died on the cross. He took that punishment, which we deserve from God, from us. And he took it upon himself. God suffered the wrath of God. I mean, how can that be? But yet that is the truth. This acceptance of God of us. It's only made possible because Jesus satisfied the justice of God. In Christ, the love of God and the justice of God came together perfectly. Today, in this passage in Matthew chapter 26, verse 35 to 30, uh, 30 to 35, what we are going to see is God's faithfulness to us. God will be faithful to us because Christ fulfilled the perfect righteousness of God, the perfect requirement of God. He gave that perfect righteous life to you and to me. We are now in the presence of God, perfect before him. God will never leave us. God will never forsake us because of the work of Christ, which he has done for us. So Jesus is faithful. Jesus is perfect. And we, we are not. So that's what we're going to see today in this passage. We're not perfect. We're not faithful. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is faithful. And he'll carry us through to the very end. Matthew chapter 26, verse 35, 30 to 35. What we're going to see are two reactions, two responses toward God, which we ought to have. Knowing that God is a faithful God. Two responses we ought to have. The first response is this. We ought to respond to God with trust. We ought to respond to God with faithful trust in him. Let's see verse 30 to 32. It says this, And when the son of him, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Here is a message of hope in midst of a message of really some difficult times are about to come up. Jesus warned the disciples, some difficult times are about to come up. In fact, all of you fail me, but I will be there for you in the end. Now, following Jesus is not an easy thing. Jesus did not live an easy life. His life was full of persecutions. His life was full of difficulties. It's not just here and now at the end of his ministry. His life was full of difficulties throughout his ministry. Pharisees sought to kill Jesus all the time. Jesus was preaching the truth, condemning the Pharisees who were self-righteous, revealing to all that the Pharisees are not the ones to be followed. And as a result of that, the Pharisees were seeking to kill him. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, it says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is happening all the time in the ministry of Jesus. People sought to kill Jesus a variety of times. In Luke chapter 4, we saw this last week. Uh, the, the natives or the people of the village of Nazareth rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill, or brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him off the cliff. Want to kill Jesus in that way? Jesus, of course, did not die because it was not his time yet. Later on, in John chapter 10, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. These are not little pebbles. These are big rocks they're trying to kill Jesus with. So throughout Jesus' ministry, he was constantly persecuted for speaking the truth. His life was always in danger. As a result of that, his disciples' lives were also in danger. Jesus warned them. 
In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the disciples are fully warned. Even while they're following Jesus, Jesus has made it clear to them, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to expect some trials, some difficulties in your life. Disciples to some degree understood that, but they didn't understand the difficulty of trial about to hit them. In John chapter 11, verse 16, Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, and disciples kind of understood. In fact, Thomas said this because Jesus was going to go heal Lazarus. And as a result of that, he's also, and at the end of that, he's also going to go to Jerusalem. So Thomas said this, let us go to Jerusalem so that we may die with him. I mean, he fully realized that Jesus is at the point where people are trying to kill him. And he knows that as he follows Jesus, he will also perhaps die. So disciples sort of being prepared, but this time where Jesus is about to go to the cross is going to be a time where the disciples are going to, will fail because in spite of their preparation, they will not be prepared enough. But the promise is this, God will be there. God will be there when they fail as God is there when we fail. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 through 19, Jesus said this, The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But that will not be the end. That will not be the end. He will be raised on the third day. He will resurrect. He will be there to deliver the disciples from their sorrow, from their depression, from their sadness. Even last week, we saw as Lord took the Lord's table with the disciples. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, he handed out the bread, saying, this is my body broken for you. He handed out the cup, saying, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins of many. Yes, I will die. And you're going to see that. But that will not be the end, because I will come one day, and I will drink of the communion cup, and I will eat of the communion bread with you. In the eternal kingdom. That is the promise that Jesus will be victorious at the end. Until then, Jesus must prepare them. It's going to be a hard time coming for you. So we're picking it up here in verse 30. It says, when the son of him. Now we just read this and we kind of just go by it and think, well, it's nothing, the son of him. Actually, there's something significant about this because Jewish people during Passover, they sing hymns. Not just one hymn, they sing many hymns. Actually, the Greek word here just says they hymn. They could have sung many hymns. And actually, that song, specifically what is called Hillel, which are Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They do it during Passover time. They would sing Psalm 113, Psalm 114 before the Passover lamb is put on the table. And after the eat of the Passover lamb, they would sing Psalm 115, Psalm 116, 117, and 118. And they will be done with the Passover meal, the Passover celebration. So one of the hymns that they sung was Psalm 118, and, and this will be an encouragement to the disciples as Jesus reminds them what will happen in a few hours from now. In Psalm 118, verse 22, it says this, and we read this before, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is going to experience rejection. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be mocked and flogged and, and captured. But that stone, who Jesus is, is going to become the cornerstone of our salvation. The end is going to be victorious. The disciples are to understand this as they're about to enter into this time of great 
trial for Jesus and for themselves. So it says here, then I went to Mount Olives. So why did they go to Mount Olives? Well, Mount Olives is this place that's opposite side of the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem sits on a, a high mountain called Mount Zion. You have to kind of go down Mount Zion, cross this Kidron brook, right? A Kidron valley, this brook which is there, and then you climb up Mount Olives, and there there's a garden called Garden Gethsemane. It's where Jesus is going to be. It's a quiet place, a place that Judas knows because Jesus used to and oftentimes meet with the disciples there. But why make this trek? The reason why Jesus made this trek is because he's making his preparation for his arrest. Jesus knew what's going to happen, and he's going to be in a place where this arrest is going to happen conveniently. Now, you know, see the Jerusalem, we imagine, is a place that is you know, quiet in the middle of the night. It actually is not quiet right now. You know, if Jesus is going to be arrested, he's going to, the, the people are going to come to a very, very busy place if they're going to arrest Jesus right there in the city of Jerusalem. We talked about this last week. You know, we, we said that in the city of Jerusalem during the Passover time, there were two sanctioned times of Passover. The Galilean Jews start the Passover day in the morning and goes all the way to Friday morning, because starts from Thursday morning, goes to Friday morning, and the Judean Jews start the Passover from Friday evening and goes all the way to Friday evening. So this is what the Jews did. They were able to have two sort of sanctioned times of Passover because they had to service two million people. And all of them had to kill their lambs during twilight. They all had to eat of the lambs in the city of Jerusalem. So they had the separation where the Galilean Jews can come and celebrate a little earlier. And the Judean Jews will celebrate a little later. So Jesus is celebrating or has celebrated the Galilean Passover with the disciples and now the Judean Jews are just gearing up in the evening. For this reason, you know, this is a city that does not sleep during Passover. That's why Jesus was so expediently tried later on. He's going to the courtyard and everybody is awake. Everybody's having the bonfire going. Jesus is waiting for the trial. The reason why is because it's during Passover night. Nobody's sleeping. Everybody's busy. So if they stay in the city, the city would have been busy. But Jesus is going to make it easy for Judas. Hey, I'm going to go over to a place that's quiet, all the way on the other side of Mount Zion, where you are going to make your arrest. He's in full control of his destiny. He's in full preparation for his own destiny. Judas is only a pawn in the plan of God. And Jesus made this comment as he arrived in the city, uh, in Garden of Gethsemane. He made this comment to the disciples that we see this in verse 31. Showing that God is, all control, God is in all control. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is coming from Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. It says this, and again, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is speaking about the disciples. Disciples will be scattered. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, hey, this night is going to be too tough for you. This night is going to be impossible for you to overcome. You're all going to run away. But don't worry. This is all part of the plan of God. In fact, God had prophesied about this 500 years ago. Zechariah wrote about this. So God already knows this is going to happen. So don't be told too disappointing yourself because later on it's going to say in verse 32, I will come and I will restore you. And Jesus says, hey, this is all part of the plan of God. I'm this true shepherd. Here in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. This is not talking about any shepherd. There are many, many false shepherds in the book of Zechariah. But this is my shepherd, God's shepherd, God's truthful shepherd. Again, against the man who stands next to me. Who can stand next to God? 
Only God himself who dares to stand next to God. Only Jesus because he is God. So God's going to stand next to God. And this God, this mighty man is going to be stricken as a result of that. The sheep will be scattered. It's all part of the plan of God. So don't worry, all you disciples. God is in full control. Something's going to happen. It's going to fully surprise you, but it's not going to surprise God. God knows exactly what is happening, and he will restore you, as he says in verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus says this is not going to be the end. This night is going to prove to be too hard for you, but the promise is that God will be with you when this is all over. And that's what God did. We'll read about this later. Jesus rose from the dead. He restored the disciples of Jerusalem. He eventually continued to restore the disciples in Galilee, teaching them for 40 days before he ascended to heaven. God will restore them. The lesson of all this is this. We are not the faithful ones. God is the faithful one. In our relationship with God, God is one who has kept us in place. He is the one who makes a unilateral covenant with us. It's not our works that pleases God, that keeps God in our relationship. It's God's works that he's pleased by, that keeps us in him. All we are called to do is to believe and to rest in him. This is so different than the relationships which we have in this world. In the relationship which we have in this world, we kind of think, you know what, we need to kind of contribute in order to keep this relationship happening, right? We kind of think, you know, in the work relationship, we have to do a good job in order for me to continue to be hired for the job. Or if you go on a date, you know, and you're just trying to impress this person, impress this boy or this girl, you feel like you have to kind of show who you are, your good side, in order to get that second date. But God is not like that. See, God's relationship with us is entirely opposite of how the world perceives relationships. He actually does not expect us to contribute to our salvation. In fact, anyone who tries to contribute to their own salvation actually is not part of that covenant which God has set up for us. You must come resting in God. You must come pleading mercy before God. You know, the story of this is so clearly illustrated in the story of the rich young ruler. Remember that story? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he already knows, you know, what Jesus already knows the game this rich young ruler is playing. He's not asking a, a genuine question. But he's asking Jesus, in, in, I think, in uh, Matthew chapter 19, um, saying this, Lord, or Jesus, or Rabbi, he didn't say Lord, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus knows what this man is, is getting at. He's not asking a genuine question. He's trying to show off. Show off all the good things he's done because eventually he's going to answer very quickly he's done all these things because Jesus says, hey, you want to see what kind of good works? Well, well this is what means to be good. This is, you had to perfectly follow the law of God to the T. Cannot even fail even one commandment ever. That's how you enter eternal kingdom. Jesus says you should not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, not murder. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Do these things. And the man says, I've done all these. Well, he was obviously what? Lying. The man's lying. Because Jesus, if he followed Jesus at any point of his life, he would have known that loving others perfectly is impossible. I mean, even the thought of lust, even the heart of hatred is considered adultery to God and murder to God in the heart. So anybody who lives in this world are going to have somewhat you know, we're all going to have sins before God that would make us imperfect before God. Each one of us, because of the sin of the heart. 
the young ruler didn't understand it. So Jesus is going to show him something. Really, Jesus is not offering another commandment for this person to do because man is lacking far more than this. But Jesus says, well, let me just mention one thing that could prove you immediately wrong because Jesus says, well, have you committed adultery? Have you lusted? And this man could have denied it, right? But Jesus wants to say something that will prove this man wrong right there, right now. Fine. Well, I think that you love your wealth. You idolize your wealth. And God says you should not have any other gods before me. So why don't you do this? Surrender all your wealth, give to the poor, and come and follow me. Man can't do it. He walked away sorrowful. Why? Because he wanted so bad to be the hero of his own salvation. He wanted to be the hero of his own story. And Jesus says, no, in this story, in my story, you are not a hero. I'm the hero. So all you need to do is come before me asking for mercy and for grace, and you would have been forgiven like any other people who come to God and say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner before you, and they would have been forgiven. But this young man didn't do it. He wanted to be a hero of his own story. He walked away sad. But in any relationship which we have with God, we cannot be the hero. God is the hero. God is the one who keeps us safe. God is the one who is faithful. We're not the faithful ones. We sin against God. We must trust in God and his restoration and his salvation and his keeping of us in him. If we believe in that, our heart will be that of Psalm 130, verse 3 to 6, and it says this. If you, O Lord, shall mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. His word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman in the morning. More than the watchman in the morning. I'm waiting unto the Lord. I cannot satisfy the righteousness of God. I will fail. But God's faithfulness will keep me in place. So we live trusting God's grace. We live trusting God's mercy. We live trusting God's faithfulness. It's how we respond to the faithful God in light of our own unfaithfulness toward him. That's the first response we ought to have before God as God demonstrates that he's the faithful God. The second response we ought to have is this. We ought to be humble before God. Be humble before God. We see this in verse 30 and 35. And Peter answered him. Okay, this is his failure. <laughs> Don't all fall away because of you. I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So we come to this passage where Jesus is, 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 is already clearly proclaiming to the disciples, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to fail, but I'm going to be the hero of the story. I'm going to be the faithful one. I will save you. Peter, however, at this point is much like the rich young ruler. I mean, he's gotten prideful over the years following Jesus. And you know what? Not me, because I will contribute to this. They'll all fall away. It will not be me. It's like when the pastor or preacher says something, you're thinking, well, oh, this other person ought to hear it. Not me. Other person should be, oh, I wish this person's here to hear this message. That's what Peter is saying. They'll all fall away. It will never be me. I will never fall away. He's having the hard attitude of pride, the hard attitude of arrogance. And Jesus knew if you are arrogant, if you're prideful, you'll never ever do the works of God. You will fail. You will fail. So Jesus reiterated again. 
It's actually the second time that he tells Peter this in verse 34. Truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This is the second time he told Peter this. You know when the, when's the first time? In the upper room, remember? In John chapter 13, verse 38, and this is also recording Luke. Everybody records what Jesus said to Peter. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I, truly, 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 I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. He told Peter this Two times. The first time in the upper room. The second time here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter just did not want to accept it. Didn't really know what to say in the first time that Jesus told him this. But the second time, he's got the answer. He's verse 35. says, I must die with you. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's doubling down. Did not believe what Jesus is saying. Jesus told him twice already. The man is not humble because later on you find that he actually... Well, he actually slept, right, while Jesus prayed. If he was humble, he would have stayed awake with Jesus praying. But he thought that he got a handle. Thought that he got a handle. Well, the story actually turned out to be a little different than what Peter envisioned. Right? This is where we kind of go a little bit further because I want to talk about this. Even though we'll talk about it again when we reach the end of Matthew chapter 26. Because Peter ended doing what? He denied Jesus. Now Jesus three times, a servant girl came up to him, recognized him, said, you're the one with Jesus, right? No, 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 I'm not the one. Now the servant girl comes up, say, hey, I, I think I, you're the one with Jesus. I saw you before. No, no, I'm not the one. The third servant came up, said, no, I saw you there just a few hours ago with Jesus. Peter began to what? Curse. Curse. Saying he did not know Jesus. I mean, what kind of... What kind of things did Peter say? Did he curse God? Did he curse Jesus? Did he add an expletive next to the name of Jesus? We don't know. I mean, it would have been a horrible thing to say. I mean, I, I, if I, if I, does it sound like a man who knows Jesus if I say this about Jesus? I mean, we don't know. But how low does man sink to? Wow. And then Jesus looked back at him, right? Looked back at him when the rooster crowed three times. And Peter went out weeping bitterly. He knew how weak he was. He was exposed to how much of a sinner and how weak his faith was. And this will be the end of the story if that was a sad story. But that's not the end because Jesus said in verse 32 of this passage, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Your faithfulness is not what keeps you in place. It's my faithfulness, my restoration that keeps you in place. You're going to sin horribly against me tonight, but it's all going to be covered by the blood of Christ. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to keep you. So this is what happened in Galilee. Now, Jesus had already risen from the dead, appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem, showed them that he is God, showed them that he has conquered death, but he needed to do something more because Peter at this time is very disillusioned, very sad, very discouraged. So back in Galilee, Peter said to the disciples, I believe in John chapter 21, verse 3, I'm going back fishing. Now Jesus had called him to be a fisher of men. He hadn't fished for two and a half years. But he's going back. Why? Didn't think of himself as worthy. Didn't think of himself as useful before God. How can a man be useful before God after committing this horrible sin of denying Jesus? How can I be useful? I'm just going to, I'm going to just, Go back to my corner. I'm going to do something that my father's done, do something my grandfather's done, do something my family's always done, do something I know how to do. It's kind of escaping from God's calling, right, in his life. Running away. All disciples are going with him at this point. They're all disillusioned. But did they catch anything that night? No. 
because that's not who they're meant to be anymore. They can't fish anymore. They're not a fisher of fish. They're a fisher of men. So they're disillusioned. They're sad. They caught nothing. In the morning, there was a man standing on the seashore. Remember that story? Calling out to them, children, do you have any fish? This is Jesus. He didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus is very, very humorous. He said Jesus doesn't crack jokes. Cracking jokes all the time. You know, it's funny. Now the disciples didn't really get it. It's like, no, I don't have any fish. And they're sad because Jesus knows how to rub it in, right? He knows how to rub it in when, when we, needed, we needed some of that. Rubs it in. Well, you know what is what you need to do? Cast your net on the right side of the fish and you'll find fish. Now, this is the absolute insanity, right? You're in the same spot. <laughs> Casting on the left side or the right side, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. Fish is not going to be just on one side of your boat. It's going to be, you know, if you change location, it's going to be perhaps a little bit different. But at the same location, and catch some fish, it's going to be, what well, kind of crazy? Not expecting that. But you know why disciples did. And you wonder why the disciples did. Because I believe they, they, they knew there's something special about this. This actually happened a few years back before Peter was called. Remember that story in Luke chapter 5? Now, Jesus had called Peter several times. Several times Jesus called Peter. You might think Peter just dropped in there and followed Jesus. But if we combine all the gospel accounts, you actually find that Jesus called Peter about three times. Three times. First time when Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. The second time, Jesus called Peter along the seashore Galilee when Peter is casting this hand net and they follow Jesus. The third time is in this time in Luke chapter 5 because every time you kind of think, well, Jesus had to call Peter so many times. Why? Because Peter was always going back to his vocation. And he followed Jesus kind of temporarily or, or, or partially or during a season, but he, go back, he goes back to fishing. This is the last time. Jesus called Peter in Luke chapter 5. Jesus had already preached the message. Use Peter's boat. Preached the message. And after he preached the message, he went and talked to Peter. And said in Luke chapter 5, and that, uh, said, oh, have you caught any fish? And um, in Luke chapter 4, let's read the story. It says, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, Luke chapter 5, verse 4 to 6, put out into the deep and let your net to catch. Simon answered, Master, we told all night and took nothing. Like they took all night and took nothing. But you know what? Because you are the master, we would do it. So they put their net. This is before, right? This is before all. This is before Jesus, you know, before Peter followed Jesus. Took the net, put it into the water, and it was so much fish. It were so many fish in the net that they couldn't pull it up. And Peter responded with this in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down on Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Why did Peter say this to Jesus at this point? Why and how? And, and, and the reason behind, we don't understand how does seeing fish cause a man to recognize how sinful he was. The reason why is this, because Jesus has been calling Peter. This is the third time already, and Peter's always been going back fishing. And finally, this miracle showed Peter that he needed to drop everything and follow him. So in Luke chapter 5, verse 10 through 11, it says, so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of what I'm calling to do. From now on, you will be catching men. Amen. When they bought their boats to land, they follow him, left everything and follow him. This is the last time they ever go back to fishing. After this, it was full time following Jesus. Never left his side. Somehow. After two years and two and a half years following Jesus, they forgot this. So Peter forgot this, that he's a sinful man. He's prideful. 
His pride was crushed when he denied Jesus. So Jesus needed to restore this man again. The same way. Cast your net on the other side, on the right side. And there were so many fishes in the net, they couldn't pull it up. And this was something that jogged the memory of Peter and John. John's the first one who cried out in John chapter 21, verse 7. It is the Lord. It's the Lord. I mean, the only one who could do this is Jesus. And Peter dropped everything, right? Jumping down, jumped down, jumped away from the boat into the Sea of Galilee, swam to shore, and there was Jesus already there preparing breakfast. They were eating breakfast with Jesus, and Jesus said to Peter, in John chapter 21, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's a very humble response. Humble, uh, a very, very inviting question and very humble response. You say, how is it humble? Well, the tone of it is humble for sure. But Jesus actually used a different word of love than Peter. Peter actually chose to use a different word of love than Jesus. Jesus said, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you love me with the, the word of uh, uh, that described the, the all-encompassing, this all-sacrificial love, agape. And Peter said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. He used the word phileo. It's like the word Philadelphia that we get for the city, the city of brotherly love. It's a word that is, is not matching up to the word that Jesus uses. Saying, God, like if you want to tell me if I love you the way that you love me, I don't. I don't. I phileo you. I love you imperfectly. A human kind of love. The best love that I can generate from my heart. But it's not the love that you have for me. He was humbled. He was humbled. This transition from the proud Peter to the humble Peter caused Jesus to give Peter a brand new commission. We saw this in John chapter 21, verse 18 through 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you're young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hand, another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is, he said, to show by what kind of death he is to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. He says to Peter, hey, Peter, you thought that you could just die for me out of your determination, out of your tenacity, out of your, your own strength? You're not going to do it. But now you're humbled. Now you know that you must depend on my Upon my strength, you will be privileged to die a death that glorifies me. That's what Jesus is saying. You will not be able to serve me from your own strength. But now that you're humbled, and now you know that you need to depend upon the strength of God, you will actually now do that. You will die for me. You will have the strength to do it. You will have the strength to go through with it. Now, this is a tremendous lesson for us because oftentimes we imagine ourselves being the martyr. I don't know if you do, but we imagine ourselves like if someone pointed a gun at you, what would you say? Someone pointed a gun at you and say, would you? <laughs> Amen. Would you, would, you, uh, <laughs> would you follow Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? If you do, I'm going to shoot you. What would your response be? And, and we're inspired by stories, right? I remember in the 90s, I was watching uh, the Columbine shooting and then just reading stories and hearing stories about this little girl and they're, they're in the school and this gunman came and pointed a gun at this girl and, this, and said to this girl, um, do you believe in Jesus? And really threatening her, right? Obviously, he didn't believe and threatening her that if, he, if she believed in Jesus, he would kill her. And this girl responded, yes, I do. And she was shot to death. And we see stories like that, and, and these stories kind of inspire us. 
Not just that story, but stories in the Bible, whether it be Daniel in the lion's den or Daniel's three friends that, that denied the request of Nebuchadnezzar and did not bow down to the statue, whether it be uh, Elijah not bowing down to Ahab or the 450 prophets of Baal. We think of these stories, and you know what? We want to be like those people, even modern-day missionaries. You know, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, I don't know, Adam Justin, John Patton, we talked about him this afternoon. These people did not fear death, even buried their dead in the mission field. So these people inspire us. We said, we can be like these people. And if someone points a gun at me, I would say, I believe in Jesus. But the reality is actually far less than that. Because why? Because we have said no to Jesus under, under much less genuine circumstances. We have. Someone wants to ask you about God, you kept quiet in your workplace with your coworkers. You could have shared the gospel with your boss, but you didn't want to get fired from your job. You could have served God's people, but you're too, too concerned about too, being too busy. You could have been out there sharing the gospel with the people in the Hollywood Boulevard, but you're too scared. We're a lot less heroic than we're making, we're making ourselves to be. That's the truth. But I say this not to make you sad, not to disappoint you, not to put you down or anything, because I want us to go through the same progress that Peter went through. Amen. We do. We can't just think it's by our own strength, by our own tenacity, by our own determination that we're going to do this for God. We must say, Lord, if you will, if you give me the strength, I will be able to stand for you. Only by your grace, I will be able to live a life of not denying you. Only by your grace that I can live telling people about you even in the most difficult circumstances. Because I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I fall at various times in my life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says the same thing, and, and really he's describing his own weakness in a variety of circumstances, but this really applies. He says this, for my grace, and God's saying to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's saying, hey, I'm willing to accept how weak I am. I'm willing to accept how fragile I am. I'm willing to accept sometimes I just don't want to tell people about God because I'm scared. I'm willing to accept that I am not as heroic as I think of myself to be. But it's when I accept that, when I recognize that, I begin to cry out to God for grace and mercy. And that's exactly when God actually gives me grace and mercy and strength to do His will. I end up doing something that I don't have the strength for, but then I end up doing it because the strength of God actually fills me at that very moment. This is the power of Christian living. We're not living for you know, from coming from our own strength. We're living coming from the strength of God. Sometimes this is what we see in Hollywood all the time, even in the church setting. People come up to ministers and pastors and say, you know what, I will be there. I would do this for you. I would give so much. I would serve so much. I would make a podcast for you. I would, you know, do whatever, right? They're, the people actually promise that. And, and I would do this thing for you. I would manage this thing for you. I would do this. And next day, I don't see them anymore. You experience that? They're very fickle. Next week, they're not there. Week after, I just don't really see them. So used to it by now. But then it's the people who don't talk about it, right? The people who say, by God's will, or even say, Lord willing, I will be able to do it. 
they actually end up doing it. These are the dependable ones because their strength are not coming from themselves. They're not thinking heroically about themselves. They're not thinking by their own strength they're able to do this. They're thinking about by God's strength that they will be able to do this. These are the people who are dependable. And this is who we ought to be. Which one are we? Are we the Peter before the cross or the Peter after the cross? Peter before the cross is the arrogant, prideful, over-promising, under-delivering. Peter after the cross, under-promising, over-delivering. Because he had become humble. What occurred in the middle? Self-examination. Self-examination occurred in the middle. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul in inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Test yourself to see who you truly are. Don't just think of yourself in a certain way. Actually see if you're actually who you are. Do you actually do what you said you would do? If not, that's okay. Because God's strength will reside in you once you recognize that. Once you trust in God and plead before God for mercy and for grace, for strength, He will fill you. Then you will do what you envision yourself doing. That's the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. I want to be on level ground. I don't want to be higher up. I don't want to, be, I don't want to think so highly about myself that, 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 that I become the hero of my story. I just want to be on level ground. I want you to teach me to do your will. And when we cry out to God like that, God's response is like that in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not displayed, dis dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God will teach you. God will strengthen you. God will lead you to do what you did not think you can do. By God's strength, by God's faithfulness. So this lesson here is teaching us how we should respond to the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. First, we need to trust in his faithfulness. And second, we need to be humble in light of his faithfulness. To close, we're seeing this particular illustration by Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians regarding jars of clay. Remember the illustration, jars of clay in 2 Corinthians? Paul says, we're just jars of clay that are used by God to do his will. So what are jars of clay? First, jars of clay are very fragile, right? You've seen a clay-made jar. If you drop them, they break. Very fragile, very easily broken. That's what we are. There's no strength in us. Second, they're very cheap. They are. They're just sand and water mixed together. Very, very cheap. The rich, the poor, they can own, own, own jars of clay. They're just containers. But, Paul says, there's something special about us because we contain something that is very, very precious. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not of us. See, the only reason that we are surviving is because God has placed something that is beautiful, something that's precious within us. He's keeping us. We're not surviving. We're not here because we are strong in of ourselves. We're here because God is sustaining us and God is protecting us. In that light, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 through 10, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed 
perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul is saying this, on one hand, I'm weak. I'm, I'm seemingly very, very easily destroyed. But on the other hand, I'm utterly indestructible. Have you thought about that? You're living in two worlds. People look at you and say, well, that person's going to be gone in a sec. He's going to be destroyed under the fire, under the, 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 the pressure of this world. And yet you are still here. What happened? And all you can say is because of the grace of God. All I do is share the gospel. All I do is represent God. And God keeps me in place. We live in two worlds. A world which we seemingly are easily destroyed. And a world in which we are utterly indestructible. That's what we are. That's the world we live in. Will you embrace our life? Amen. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your encouragement to us. Lord, we know that we are nothing in of ourselves. We cannot survive based on our own determination and our strength and, and whatever it is that we think we have, our possessions. We're only here because of your grace. So, Lord, fill us with a heart of gratitude, a heart of humility, a heart of faith and trust in you as we step into this world proclaiming you. Lord, we need you, Lord. We need you for every circumstance of our lives. And certainly with this many people in the room, we all know that this applies to each one of us individually in very different ways. But I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will really make it clear to us how we should apply this passage to our lives, how we can step forward in faith without fear, knowing, Lord, that you are the one who keep us. We don't need to trust in ourselves. We don't need to trust in our circumstances. We don't need to trust in our own strength. We trust in the God who leads. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you, God, that you are faithful in light of all circumstances that we go through. It is in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>